Well, in the conversation, we were talking about Joe Biden and the withdrawal from Afghanistan and what went wrong, what went right. If you're looking at the pictures and think, well, it looks like a lot of things went right. I hear you on that, but I think there's a lot more nuance to that story. We're gonna bring on John Halterwanger. He's a senior politics reporter at Insider to talk about it. John, welcome back to the show. Hi there, thanks for having me. No problem. All right, you saw the press conference and it looks like there is tremendous disagreement about it. People ranging from furious about it and claiming that he's finger pointing at other people to people saying, no, I think the American people largely agree with him. What was your take? Well, Biden did get a lot right about what's been going wrong in this war. He was brutally honest with Americans about the fact that multiple presidents have made missteps in Afghanistan over the years. and. It's largely been an embarrassing disaster for the US, which is precisely why he made the very difficult decision to withdraw US troops and end this war very close to the 20th anniversary. A lot of people would say that although Biden said during the speech that the buck stops with me, that he actually passed the buck on to others. He was very critical of Afghan leaders who have fled the country and of the Afghan military over what's happened in Afghanistan over the past week or so, where we've seen the Taliban basically stroll into major cities with the Afghan military barely putting up a fight or actually not putting up a fight at all. This has been a remarkably fast takeover of Afghanistan, though I should note that the Taliban already controlled up to 85% of the country in July. So it wasn't as if they were starting from scratch. Things have not been going well in Afghanistan for a while. So Biden did make a number of valid points in that regard. It's true that the Afghan military did not put up a fight. But a month ago, Biden said he trusted in the capacity of the Afghan military, that they were the among the most well-equipped armies in the world. And he said that he thought that they could hold off the Taliban. Four weeks later, we've seen how wrong he was. But then again, a lot of Americans agree with his decision to withdraw US troops from Afghanistan. This has been a long and costly war. It's cost many lives, especially Afghan civilians. It's cost a lot of money. And I think at the end of the day, this is probably unlikely to hurt Biden politically. Yeah, so I have a defense of Biden and it's I don't often defend Biden because I don't think he's genuine in a lot of his domestic policy positions, etc. To me, it's it's less about defending Biden than it is, and he's right. The buck does stop with him, and so he should have checked better on the folks I'm actually going to blame. That I think shoulder 90% of the blame here, but I'm not sure that I'm seeing that in the press a lot. So I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Um, to me, it's kind of obvious. It's the Pentagon. They blew it. They not only blew it on the withdrawal. Uh, they must have assured Biden that it was <laughs> that Kabul was not going to fall within the week. I'm sure they told them pretty little lies about how good their allies in the Afghan government was and how well trained they were. And and Biden believed those lies, but they were lies. And the Pentagon has done nothing over the last 20 years. They've been an absolute disaster. This withdrawal is a complete proof that they're totally useless. So yeah, that's harsh, but what the hell they've been doing there for 20 years? I think you make a lot of valid points. We know that multiple administrations have lied to us about what's going on in Afghanistan, repeatedly telling us 
that they were that the US was turning a corner there. Um, and that was clearly a product of very misleading intelligence assessments that they were getting from people at the Pentagon. Uh, we saw just last week that the US military was assessing it could take up to 90 days for Kabul to fall. Clearly that was extraordinarily wrong, um, but it, it probably underscores why folks like Biden, uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken have expressed such confidence uh, in the situation on the ground and have said, hey, look, I know that, that folks are worried about these Afghans who are especially vulnerable to reprisals by the Taliban. But from our understanding, we have a fair amount of time to get out of there. We're, we're taking this seriously, don't worry, there's no rush. Obviously, when you see these, these harrowing images at the Kabul airport today of these civilians and perhaps maybe some Afghans who helped the US mixed into the crowd, literally clinging to a, a US military aircraft, um, they were extraordinarily wrong. Uh, but I do think that you make a valid point that they are getting their intelligence, uh, their assessment of the situation on the ground from the US military. Uh, and in many ways, there's a lot of signs that the, the, the Pentagon has utterly bungled this uh, for, for the Biden administration. Even as far back as I believe it was in June when they really started to uh, ramp down the US presence there, uh, when they left the Bagram Air Force Base, which is the largest Air Force Base in Afghanistan, they didn't consult with local officials. They did it overnight and the air base was ransacked as a result. So this has just been messy and sloppy all around. Biden has said on several occasions, including the speech he gave on Monday, that they were the best equipped military around with 300,000 soldiers in the Afghan military. And they were routed instantly, right? So that leads to two conclusions. Number one, Congrats to the US military for just making the Taliban the best armed military around. Because they now have presumably almost all those weapons. So oops, which leads me to the question of the first part of the question, which is how many times is the Pentagon going to say oops before not just politicians, not just folks like us, but the mainstream media overall, the press says maybe these guys are either a bunch of total screw ups who never get anything right, or they're all gonna be defense contractors. And the one set of folks that got super rich off of Afghanistan are and hanging mission accomplished banners as we speak are defense contractors. I mean, you ask a lot of important questions here. I think that this entire situation is a reckoning for the entire foreign policy establishment in Washington, which does include the media, which has taken the words of, of military officials quite seriously over the years. Uh, but also one might say in recent years has really neglected to cover uh, the Afghanistan war. Uh, because it was not something that drove viewership, even though it was something that was very important. And, and something that the US military was pouring astounding amounts of money into. Uh, we spent nearly, just to your point, uh, roughly $83 billion just arming the Afghan military alone. Uh, and again, to your point, the Taliban essentially took all that weaponry and retook Afghanistan with it. Uh, and this has been an issue for years. Uh, we've known that the, the Afghan military was plagued by uh, discipline issues, by corruption. The Taliban has frequently been found to have US weapons in their possession. But uh, the US military continued its mission there despite all the signs that it was not working. And to your point again, uh, I think the entire foreign policy, foreign policy establishment, excuse me, needs to ask some serious questions about how it covers conflicts that the US is involved in. 
because this really is a collective failure for America. Um, in the sense that it does involve not just the military, not just the White House, uh, but the media, defense contractors. Uh, so many people have contributed to this failure. Yeah, so I want to go back to the media uh, one more time because look, there's they almost never question a Pentagon, which is outrageous. And uh, they should have asked in year 15, how many years is it going to take? In year 16, in year 17, in year 18, 19, 20. For God's sake, how long is this going to take? What are you accomplishing? It looks like it's the same exact thing as we had before. All that we've talked about and is granted, right? But there's arguably something even more important, which is the the issue here isn't a military one; it's a cultural one. So now people are saying, "Well, oh my God, the poor women of Afghanistan." That's true, right? Uh, so, but the issue—it's we couldn't have killed enough Afghan men to change the culture of Afghanistan enough to protect the women once we leave, right? And so the issue is, how do you change the culture? And that's in in some ways more of a third rail issue. It feels like. Oh yeah, we can go invade a country and kill hundreds of thousands of people, and that's not a big deal. But if we talk about changing people's cultures, oh, that's unacceptable, right? But if you don't change the culture, it doesn't matter how how many decades you stay there. The same exact thing would happen the minute you leave. I think it was very arrogant for the U.S. to assume it could ever really fundamentally change Afghanistan. One valid point that Biden made during his speech today that is that Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires. The U.S. is just the latest empire to engage in a devastating and failed imperialistic experiment in Afghanistan. Um, we've exhibited an extraordinary level of hubris uh, by staying there as long as we did. Um, Biden, in many ways, was the only president who was willing to rip the Band-Aid off and admit that the US failed and it was time to go. Um, and as painful as that is, and as as large as the consequences have been, um, he, he made valid points that the situation was unlikely to fundamentally change if the US stayed one more year or five more year or 10 more years. But we still have people in Washington uh, contending that the Biden administration should bomb the Taliban to bits. Well, folks, we tried that already. It didn't work out. Yeah, Lindsey Graham's a total and utter idiot, uh, let alone completely corrupted by defense contractors who are giant donors of his. He, he Because he mentioned that on Monday over and over, oh, we should just kill them all. What an idiot that guy is. Nobody should ever take him seriously. Now, having said that, we're fair about and not partisan. There's tons of blame for the Democratic Party too. Here, as everybody's attacking Biden, I'm saying, actually, I agree with you. He did something courageous. He ripped a Band-Aid off. They were never gonna solve this, gonna say that he said it right. He said, if we left five years ago, if we left 15 years from now, the same exact thing would have happened. And he's definitely right about that. On the other hand, Barack Obama did a surge in Afghanistan. Are we ever gonna go back and have a reckoning on that and go, oh yeah, that was a miserable failure. Obama should be embarrassed for that total failure of a project over a decade and nothing to show for it. Well, I think, yeah, I think all these administrations that were involved in Afghanistan have to own this failure. Perhaps none more so than the Bush administration. I think it's important to remember yep. the Taliban actually offered to hand over Osama bin Laden within about a week of the invasion. Uh, in exchange for the US to stop bombing, Bush said no. But of course, the Obama administration, to your point, does own this as well. Uh, the surge was actually something that Biden objected to as vice president. Yep. Um, Biden became convinced that uh, many years ago that the US president's uh, presence in Afghanistan was 
not productive, and that the war was essentially futile. So he's tried to be a voice of wisdom on this for many, many years. But yes, to your point, the Obama administration owns this as well. They own the fact that the drone war was drastically escalated during that era, leading to many civilian deaths and arguably helping terrorist groups around the world, jihadist groups recruit by pointing to the US as an imperialistic force that doesn't care about civilians. So yeah, it's not just it's not just Bush, it's not just Obama, it's not just Trump, it's not just Biden. It's a collective failure. It's it's a democratic, it's a bipartisan failure. There's not a lot of bipartisanship in America today, but Afghanistan is something that both parties failed together. Now, facts matter. That's exactly right. Biden has been right about Afghanistan for a long time. Uh, Obama was disastrously wrong. The Pentagon is the worst in in dealing with it. Uh, should get uh, most of the culpability. But at the end of the day, Bush and Cheney started this, uh, and and they had this maniacal policy that Cheney also applied to Iran, and he said, we don't talk to evil. What a dumb way of thinking about it. And they cost us thousands of Americans lives, hundreds of thousands of lives overall, and trillions of dollars. But hey, Halliburton got rich, so there's that. All right, John Holtwanger, a good reporter at Insider. Thank you for joining us, we appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Back on the conversation. The Cuomo era is finally over in New York, thank God. Now we're presumably get some new leaders, but are they going to be the same as the old leaders? Or are we going to actually get something different in what is supposed to be a liberal or progressive state? Well, we're gonna bring on Jake LaHutt, talk about he's a politics reporter, insider, covers New York politics. Jake, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. No problem. So Jake, you've written about new exciting leaders in New York that are a little bit different than the old guard. Obviously AOC jumps to mind. And But really the question is, is that relevant at all? Or are the politicians just gonna go back to doing what they always do in New York, which is basically be corrupt and give everything to their donors? And if I'm being honest about it, and I that's what I do, and have the media cheerlead for it. Yeah, well, I, clearly that's you know in the legacy of Tammany Hall and really what New York politics has been for the 20th century and you know most of this century. What I would say to counter that is one: if you look at around you know 2016, 2018, this is when Governor Cuomo actually started to lose quite a bit of leverage in terms of his relationship with the legislature, principally. There were all these you know, newer progressive members who were coming in. The ones I would name right off the bat are people like State Senator Alessandra Biaggi. You have Assembly Member Yulene New from the Financial District in Chinatown in the lower chamber. Members like this who were you know kind of of the maybe not necessarily in the Democratic Socialists, but in this newer generation of you know a true left coming from New York City, they come through the ranks. And crucially, what a number of other Democrats did in that cycle was oust these Democratic members of the Independent Democratic Caucus, or you'll hear the term IDC thrown around a lot. Basically what that was, was that they were caucusing with Republicans and effectively giving the Republicans a majority in the Senate, even though it was you know, a, a Democratic majority in the state Senate on paper. So basically what that does for Governor Cuomo is, 
he no longer has this trump card of always being able to come in as the deal maker and the person who will solve the gridlock between the democratic majority assembly, which again is proportional representation, mostly members from New York City, Long Island, downstate. And then you have the state senate, which you know is similar to the US Senate, accounts for rural areas in a in a you know kind of weight on the scales manner. So you have upstate and usually Republicans having a heavier influence there. So th- that dynamic is over for now. And you have a really deep bench of a lot of Democrats, you know, particularly in New York City, but also in other corners of the state who no longer have to kind of wait their turn for the governor's preferred pecking order. And I think a lot of these primaries, including the 2022 governor's race are gonna be wide open. Yeah, we'll see about that. And so <laughs> the reason why I'm skeptical, Jake, your facts are all right, no question. And Cynthia Nixon lost against Cuomo, obviously. But I think it's fair to say that she had some influence in wiping out those conservative Democrats, because most of them lost in that same race. And so that was a pivotal race that progressives won, even though the top of the ticket lost. So all of that is correct, no question about it, and it's important context. Now, having said that, look, I keep going back to the press because I think they're the main problem. Because now everybody knows that Cuomo backed that group of conservative Democrats. Everybody knows that he put basically put them Republicans secretly back in charge. And everybody knows why he did it, which was his donors. His donors wanted the Republicans to win, so he handed the state back to them. Now, everybody in the press knows that. They write about that group, they, but they never, ever connect the dots and never told the voters of New York, Oh, by the way, your governor is incredibly corrupt and he does everything on behalf of his donors. Well, I mean, I think you're making a good point. Well, I think if you're someone who reads the coverage in the Albany Times Union or you know, you read outlets that have a member in the Legislative Correspondents Association in the Capitol, they were saying these things for years. But part of this is, is you know, a structural business of journalism issue in the sense that you know the number of reporters in the Capitol Bureau is so diminished from what it used to be. And really the New York State Capitol is kind of an exception in, in the modern era where there are still a number of beat reporters for you know local, regional and national papers who are based there. And but that's just not the case in a lot of other state capitals. So I think that part of the issue is in our media ecosystem, we're not seeing you know reporters who have been saying these things forever. Someone like Jimmy Veilkind of the Wall Street Journal, a great example. He's been covering Cuomo for the Times Union, for Politico, now for the Wall Street Journal, and he has made you know really kind of whether it's in a press conference going toe to toe with Cuomo or just you know plain spoken. Reporting, he has a a great you know kind of perch at the in his coverage now. But you can name a bunch of other people who I think have really done an exceptional job holding Cuomo you know accountable, holding his feet to the fire, and through all these ethical issues that he's had in his administration, they've been reported on. The question is, how much does it seem to factor into? Primaries, how much does it factor into Democratic voters and in the public writ large? So I just think we're not hearing the same level of amplification from the folks who are seeing this, you know, very clearly up close, but in our increasingly, you know, nationalized and hyperpartisan, you know, discourse just in all social media on, you know, whether it's getting eyes on cable, eyes on streaming, those aren't the kind of things that tend to rise to the to the surface. 
Yeah, so Jake, that's a great point. And there are some wonderful reporters at the local level that actually do the hard work of reporting. And, and those are exactly the kind of folks we wanna support. Um, but when you get to the bigger players, and look, local news is hopeless. And unfortunately, a huge number of people still get their news from local news, local television news, right? And, and television is just, they're never gonna hold politicians accountable. They're just ass kissers by nature. It's inconceivable that they would hold them by, accountable. So no hope in local television news, including the, the biggest local TV news outlets in New York, right? So I'm not even having that conversation. And unfortunately, they influence a lot of people. But when you get to people who should know better, New York Times and cable news, in a sense, they're all homosexuals, to use that term that was used before. <laughs> so they're not gonna retire that quite yet, huh? No, and so New York Times, from time to time, does a really good story, investigative story, like on the Moreland Commission. And so how, how do I know how deeply corrupt Andrew Cuomo is? Partly because of that New York Times story, right? And they explained how it connects back to his real estate donors. The minute you touch the real estate donors, he shuts down the commission, okay? But then they have collective amnesia and instantly forget about it and go back to reporting Cuomo incredibly positively as if their own investigative reporting team didn't break the story that the guy's as corrupt as any politician in America. Yeah, and the, the whole weird period from you know the start of the pandemic to I guess you'd really say like this past winter where it was just the simple juxtaposition of Cuomo filling this void. Really, I think an emotional need people had during the pandemic. And we've been over you know what he did well in the briefings and stuff before. But I think that that did, to your point, overshadow and kind of almost overcompensate for what were a lot of the same attributes at play. I mean, I think the things that made Cuomo come across in the way that struck a nerve with at least a decent portion of voters on you know the center and you know kind of you know your moderate Democrats during that period was he kind of micromanages. He likes to really you know go on at length about almost anything, personal stories, random tangents. You know, but also his kind of domineering manner of overriding, you know, local officials and trying to have a decisive, you know, XYZ response to the pandemic, no questions asked. Those were the same things that got him in all this trouble in the first place. I mean, he really did kind of live and die by the sword in terms of always being in everybody's business and always having this, you know, menacing management slash leadership style. So I mean, to the media criticism point, I think a lot of this is very much fair game. And I think that also it should be taken seriously because, you know, frankly, because New York's on the East Coast, because so many media companies are based here, yeah, it has an outsized influence on the way we talk about national politics and certainly the way we talk about Democrats. So I think all that's fair game, but ultimately, you know, I think the credit does go to the people who have been on this from day one. And you know, at this point, I think that there is really a wide open, whether it's the 2022 governor's race or just kind of a general power dynamic within the New York State Democratic Party, that I'm not sure if Kathy Hochul is like guaranteed to you know be the next governor for a full term. Jake, hear me now. Quote me later. Okay, maybe literally right. in your case in a story. <laughs> All of the media will fall in line for the next corporate Democrat. They'll not be, unless it's AOC, and that's a different level of star power, right? And I hope she doesn't do that. I think that would be a waste of her talent. But but if it's just a progressive that's up and coming versus a corporate Democrat, all of the press will paint the corporate Democrat as the legitimate heir 
and the credible candidate. And they will paint the progressive as a radical, an outsider, upstart, all these words that trigger for their readers. Remember, don't vote for them, they're not legitimate, right? So, well, I mean, I think it's, mm-hmm. yes, right. No, go ahead, go ahead, Jake. I mean, I just think it depends on where in the media ecosystem you're you're, you're looking. Like the, the New York City tabloid coverage, I think that the the more competitive a race is, the better it is for them. But yeah, obviously, like places like the New York Post are you know would tend to describe a candidate a certain way versus the New York Daily News or whatever. What I think is the the more important thing going on is there's kind of a generational changing of the guard happening in New York, where one, Kathy Hochul is not really part of the Cuomo club per se. Now that is definitely gonna be just her simple association with him will be an issue in the 2022 primary. But she really has more of a base of support in Western New York. And her whole point of being on the ticket in the first place in 2014 was to offer kind of an upstate you know, balance to what was at that point, Cuomo trying to, you know, go through with a number of controversial bills. Obviously, the gun control one was up there. Uh, you know, but really, Hochul is, yes, gonna enjoy the incumbency advantages. But I've heard a lot of, you know, and let's just get to the chatter. I've heard most rumors about Jamani Williams, who's the newly elected New York City public advocate, potentially doing a run. A little bit about Attorney General Tish James, but I mean, I think that that's a crazy position for her to be in. And it was the Cuomo team really who was pushing the whole idea that this investigation was politically motivated and there would be a Tish James primary challenge to Cuomo in 2022. But you know, looking down the line, someone like AOC, I think that she has such influence in you know our politics and culture that it doesn't really matter what her office is necessarily because her reach is kind of well beyond the conventions of any you know bully pulpit from before but you also have people like Antonio Delgado who's a, a congressman in the Hudson Valley first uh, black person to ever flip that district ever hold it and he flipped it from Republicans who had been controlling it for uh, the period up until the midterms before that that was Kirsten Gillibrand's seat So, you know, even figures who like the primary opponents of Delgado in that race did call him a corporate Democrat. I think that it's just so up in the air right now that even the the typical lanes we've seen of, you know, the moderate money supported candidates in a Democratic primary like that, that dynamic might change now that we have a number of people who are ready to move up a position basically. And that's just the dynamic of it being a one party state where, you know, there's never gonna be a changing of the guard party wise in the legislature or anything like that. So it's when there's a huge figure going out like Cuomo that people who've been waiting a while can suddenly move up and get their turn. Or more importantly, people who've been banging at the door more recently can you know really get in the center of the conversation by having a position with actual serious power and influence. Yeah, and by the way, the two names that haven't been mentioned, they're probably not interested in it, but Jamal Bowman, Mondaire Jones, interesting new congressman Definitely. from New York, both very strong. Uh, and very popular, so also interesting to note. All right, Jake LaHutt uh, from Insider uh, covering this intelligently. We appreciate it, thank you for joining us. Thanks, and I'll see if I can quote you on that later, Jake. (laughs) All right, sounds good.